0: Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. Brian Burke is one of hockey's most notable characters. He's hard to miss, whether it's on TV or in the flesh. He's a big man and an imposing figure. White hair combed back, the untie draped around his neck, and we're just talking his physical presence. As for his belief system and opinions, he's a mix of old school and progressive, and he'll let you know where he stands on an issue and is paid to share those thoughts as an analyst on Hockey Night in Canada. Most of you listening are probably familiar with Mr. Burke, and if you follow hockey, his career path makes it almost impossible not to know him. Why? Well, he was the league's disciplinarian, handing out suspensions, and depending on who your favorite team or player was, justice served was never enough or way too harsh. He could have disappeared when he was hired for his first NHL GM job and soon to be be relocated Hartford, but his next hockey roles took the American up north and front and center for his on-cam close-up. When you're at the helm in cities like Vancouver, Toronto, and Calgary, you have to be ready to face the music. Brian Burke would say, strike up the band. If the research was correct, he had been planning on writing a memoir very soon after his tenure with The Flames ended in 20, April 2018. And now here it is. Burke's Law with Stephen Brunt, which was released on October 13th today via Penguin Random House. In its 295 pages, including acknowledgments, the breadth of his experience in the game is covered from his time as a college hockey player in Maine to Harvard Law and becoming a player agent where he pulled no punches with his clients, including a very funny dressing down of Brett Hall, which you'll have to uh, read about when you pick up the book. Of course, steering Anaheim to their lone Stanley Cup win in 2007, which was the first Stanley Cup won by a California team, that was a milestone. But his career intersects with many significant events in the NHL's recent history. There there is his inside perspective on the Bertuzzi Moore incident that happened while he was GM of the Canucks. And of course, his attention-grabbing hire, moves, quotes, and departure while with the Toronto Maple Leafs from 2008 to 2013. But there's more to Burke than Hockey. In fact, he writes that at his funeral, he hopes that Hockey isn't even mentioned. Family comes first. In these pages, Burke outlines the bi-monthly, grueling commute to be with his kids, who were located across the continent while he was working on the West Coast, and of course, the tragic loss of his son, Brendan. That portion contains perhaps the most moving line of any of the 25 books we've talked about so far, or any that I've read. It, he talks about a frigid winter day when, he, uh, when Brendan was laid to rest. And as Burke watched the fu- the, bur- the burial of his son, he thought, he's going to be cold in there. A parent's bond with their child knows no end. But uh, to continue our lead into speaking with Brian Burke today, I'll turn it over to you, Nate Sager.
1: Yeah, uh, Brian, this could be our most truculent uh, episode <laughs> ever. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, Brian Yeah, Brian Burke always calls to mind something that a friend who's a coach once said to me about the sports business, Neil. Everyone wants honesty, but no one wants to give honesty. Uh, Burke's never had an issue with the latter, and being direct the way that he's been, whether he's, you know, GM of a team or, you know, on the panel at Sportsnet, that goes against the grain in the hockey world where cliches are practically one of the four food groups. It, but I think that, you know, in, in, enriches the uh, the sport. That The product is better when you sort of have, you know, feuding and, and beefing in public and differences of opinions play out in public instead of some hallway down in the bowels of the arena. If you don't believe that that sells, helps sell the sport, then you probably think people follow, you know, wrestling for the athleticism. But Burke, uh, you know, he's a guy who can be off the cuff and sometimes, you know, that rubs people the wrong way, I think back to i think the nhl draft coverage uh, last week i think he was talking about how when you're each team has a table during the draft when it's done in person not virtually as it was last week and you have a runner and he was said something like oh the worst was when you would get a girl as a runner because then you couldn't swear and people were like oh that's sexist and he's like no he's actually saying you know i'm just i'm from a generation was taught you know don't swear in front of girls and women be be a gentleman and if, I think if someone ran that quote back to me, he might, be, you know, as a father of four girls and as a you know sports personality who was you know posting on International Day of the Girl this weekend, he'd probably go, "Ooh, I Okay, I see. Uh, he's not you know this shoot from the hip and ooh, I'm sorry if anyone was offended later." A hot take artist, I do believe when he weighs in on a subject, it comes from a well of deep thought from someone who's seen hockey close up in all these different capacities, as you uh, elucidated uh, earlier, Neil. Uh, <laughs> and I know, sir, how that always translates into the hurly-burly of, you know, our social media world in 2020, if you excuse me, sounding like old man yells at cloud <laughs> You know, the, you know, people are used to, you know, all this messaging that's highly polished and goes through, you know, several layers of uh, public relations people. And Brian Burke, you know, has stayed true to his roots in a world where being inconveniently honest <laughs> is a feature and not a bug. And uh, sometimes I think that's an act of kindness to be you know honest in criticism and criticism and tell people what they need to hear, even if they're maybe not quite ready to hear it. Uh, now, if you buy Burke's Law, it's a really fast-moving narrative because it takes you through all of, you know Brian Burke's life from his early, early years you know, growing up in up in the United States. He was a relative like a really late bloomer in in hockey. Uh, you know, when he came into the, you know being an NHL agent, when you were still negotiating you know signing bonuses that were in like the mid five figures. Like, oh look, I got you. I got an extra five thousand dollars and a Cliff <laughs> Fletcher for it for you. Uh, but the one theme that really just he's you know the, the runner all through this uh narrative is just you know that honesty is the best policy uh and you sort of learn where he came by that you know you know having lou lamorello as his as his college coach uh, that it, which opened important doors for him, him in the hockey world and working under the late great pat quinn in vancouver's front office in the 80s And I mean, I sort of knew that that was part of it, but I didn't know how much, I knew that sort of the rough outline and also knew that Brian Burke was a graduate of Harvard Law School, but I didn't, you know, this sort of filled in, you know, the the blanks for me. Uh, And I mean, he was also, you know, just a guy who, he wouldn't say marched the beat of his own drum, but saw that, you know, in this cutthroat sports world, people need the sometimes the relationships to be more than just transactional. They need to be transformative, and you need to sort of bring some values into that arena. I sort of remember reading Brett Hull's book when I was in high school. Hull, Burke was Hull's agent when Hull was early in his career, and <laughs> uh, Hull related that you know Burke had all these rules. You could only spend so much on a car. He turned down one of Hull's. Uh, Teammates at the University of Minnesota Duluth as a client because the guy was like, "Oh, as soon as I sign a contract, I want to get a car, I want to buy some clothes." And Burke's like, "Yeah, we're we're (laughs) we're not going to be able to work work together." Uh, So those so this book really shows you how those values were nourished by the connections Burke's built throughout his life in hockey, and you know, like I say, like it did make me reflect upon you know the 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 value of those transformative relationships Uh, because i think those are what matter at the end of the day Uh, in sports you know realistically only one team wins the championship in any given season and you can do almost everything right and sometimes not get the end result that that you desire so many things are out of your control so that transformative connecting with people who wants to give you something that goes beyond just a mere business deal i think that's what endures i think of the profile of John Cusack, I recently read in the Guardian, he's looking back, you know, more than 30 years to when he was a young actor, and how you know Rob Reiner was his director on a couple of films, and Reiner's like, yeah, I was a I was a child star too, and gave him this little sort of haven in Hollywood, which is as rough and tumble of a place as as the National Hockey League. So uh, you know, we were, obviously that's something that you know Brian Burke's sort of trying to get across in this book. Uh, obviously, you know, there's probably lot lots more people. Like that in sports than we realize but you know he because he's won and because he's you know stayed tried to stay true to those things it's made for you know a very interesting book and i think uh that's the kind of person you sort of want helming your favorite sports teams that you know someone who's you know true to their principles and isn't cutting corners you know ethically and to try to get to, get to the top You know, because if if your team is good enough and lucky enough to win, you want to not feel like some sort of moral conflict for years afterwards. You know, unless you're a Houston Astros fan, of course. Anyways, (laughs) so a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, Our last guest was Sammy Joe Small, the role I played, Canada's greatest Olympic hockey team from ECW Press. Our episodes, you know, we, we strive to be evergreen, but... That one's topical since we asked her about, you know, the National Women's Hockey League, the future of, you know, professional women's hockey. And boom, you know, I think in the last 48 hours or so, the commissioner of the NWHL, Danny Rillin Kearney, stepped down. So, you know, that's, that's a story. So maybe you want to circle back. And prior to that, we spoke with uh, Jeff Perlman about three-ring circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty from Houghton Mifflin Hardcore. And I'm not sure if there's anything newsworthy about the Lakers happening this week, <laughs> but that has become, at the time of this recording, the number one bestseller in sports journal in the sports journalism category on Amazon. So, congratulations to Jeff, and thanks to him again for you know gracing us with his time, time and uh, perspective.
0: Yes, of course. Uh, if, looking back, Jeff. Um Jeff, you know he had the the misfortune, and I mean it wasn't his misfortune; it was a terrible tragedy, Kobe Bryant dying, and that started off, you know, just when he was about to release the book, and it it ends with the timing of the Lakers tying the Celtics for most NBA championships of all time. So it kind of came full circle in a way, and and I think they can celebrate uh, Kobe and the Lakers together, and and read about you know who he was coming up, uh, which is just as important as who he was. In the latter half of his career. So, uh, yeah, check both of those books out and everything else on sportslit.ca. But for now, in our latest episode, uh, Mr. Brian Burke. Okay, so my first question uh, to you, uh, Brian, is when you left Calgary in April of 2018, one of the things you said, and I'm specifically referring to an article uh, in The Calgary Sun by Eric Francis, was that you were going to start to write a book. So was that when the project started?
2: Well, what happened was after we won the Cup in Anaheim in 2007, Stephen Brunt asked me about doing a book, and I wasn't ready to do one then, so I said no but the deal I made when I went to Calgary was that at the end of each season, they would indicate if they were happy with me staying on and I would indicate whether I wanted to stay on or not. And so the late great Ken King came into my office in February and said, we're going to make a change at the end of the year. They thought Brad a was ready to operate without guidance from me. And I think that's clearly correct. (laughs) And they had brought Donnie Maloney in anyway. So we had some gray hair in the room to help him. And so, um, I obviously between February and the end of the season had some time. So I started doing an outline and I did about a hundred page single spaced outline of my different stops in hockey. I didn't spend a lot of time on my youth because when I buy an autobiography about a sports guy or a business guy, I don't really care about what happened when he was a kid. I, I'm bored to tears. <laughs> so I just talked about uh when I started playing hockey when we moved to Minnesota, I was thirteen. I think that's important. That late start, and a couple of high school, uh, high school football incident, but mainly it was okay. I'm out of law school. I'm representing players, and then I started working for teams. So the bulk of the book is about my professional career from when I graduated from law school in 1981, and then 32 years later, or 38 years later, after 32 years working for teams and and uh, and the league. I think it's, I think people find it interesting.
0: Well, we certainly did, um and I want to ask you, going back to stephen brunt um you you write that Stephen Brunt added quote polish to your labored prose um so how did he factor into the process? Did you write most of it and then send it to him, and he did exactly that, polished it,
2: or was it mostly you well he he looked at my outline and said it was garbage <laughs> <laughs> he said you you write like a lawyer and it's it's not uh You know it's not good enough and he's a great writer i love his books and so he used the outline as a as a reference point you know to the important stories about you know drafting chris pronger drafting the twins and um and then we did session after session where i would dictate my recollection of these things then he would have them typed up and i would proof them instantly and make changes if i didn't like the way i said something maybe it sounded too harsh about somebody uh, and make the edits and get them right back to them. So it was a collaborative process. Uh, he did a great job, I think. I think people will enjoy it. I really do. He...
0: um he was uh, he appeared on Sportsnet 960 in Calgary, I think probably in April, and I just took a listen last night to what he said because at that point he was kind of revealing to the public that this book would be coming out, and I believe the release date is today. Um, and and what I, what I found really interesting was that he said that um, you know obviously he talked about your your attention to deadlines. So he said if the you know the publishing house wanted something on January 1st, you had it by December 1st. And he also mentioned that you were a, a pen and paper guy, which I was surprised to hear, considering you were the guy that brought laptops to scouting.
2: Uh, (laughs) Well, I can't type, I mean, you guys would laugh, if if I typed an email to you right now and you got to watch it, you would howl. (laughs) And so I I never learned. My mother told me when I I was in junior high school that I should learn to type. So in grade nine, in Minnesota they have three-year middle school, three-year high school, so you go seven, eight, nine middle school then 10 11 12 is high school and so in grade nine i took a typing course i paid a cheerleader to type for me <laughs> i got an a but i don't know how
3: to type
1: <laughs> go ahead nate uh now two key figures in in your hockey life uh lou lamorello and pat quinn both you know unique men uh but what did they each impart to you about having a you know a strong base of values but being flexible and able to innovate because you were sort of saying neither both were ahead of their times in certain aspects of you know team and athlete development
2: yeah well i i've I've been blessed Uh, my dad was a major influence in my life he's gone now but he was i still miss calling him for advice uh he didn't understand the hockey business at all but he was a successful businessman, and he had general principles that he would you know, remind me about. He was a great help. But the three guys that impacted most of my professional life were first Lou. I played for Lou for four years. Lou is the reason I went to law school. Uh, I owe him so much. I was a walk-on freshman. I didn't get any money. He put me on a half scholarship after my first year and then a full ride my last two years. Uh, but he turned me from this green kid from Minnesota into a man. Uh, with proper decision-making, proper values. Uh, I owe him so much. And he was old school, but he was an animator. Like we, we we did things that other teams didn't do back then. We blocked shots, which is, everyone does it now, but back then it wasn't taught. It wasn't part of your arsenal. It was, if you get the odd one, great. But we blocked shots. We worked on it. Uh, we stretched. And people say, so, that's not progressive stretching. Back then, nobody stretched. I remember going to training camp with the Flyers, and we would go on the ice, and skate around a couple laps, stretch your grinds, and that was it. We stretched at Providence. We did circuit training. We used video. So he was really ahead of his time. And then when I went to work for Pat Quinn, Pat's this crusty, big Irishman, a lot like me. But Pat was an innovator, too. Pat, We were the first or second team to have a strength coach. We were the first team to go to computer or laptop scouting. Uh, back then, and people will laugh when they believe when they hear this or read this, Scouts used to file written reports, and they'd mail them in. And then someone in the office, one of the EA's secretaries, we call them that, would have to enter it into the computer. And we're like, we got to get rid of that step. we got to file. And so Pat said, find the money. We didn't have the money for it. It was like It was very expensive at the time when we were losing money. And Pat said, get it done. So Pat was a great innovator. And Pat was big on fairness. Pat insisted on fairness to everyone that works for the team, the players. you got to be fair with people. You don't have to give them what they want, but you got to be fair.
0: Um, before we talk about an infamous 18-wheeler, I want to ask you about Hutchins and Wheeler and how that law firm shaped uh, your career path in hockey.
2: Well, Hutchins and Wheeler, they were great. They, uh, the guy that my mentor there was a guy named Ron Garmy and he was the one who wanted to develop the sports practice. And uh, They were terrifically supportive and and they just let me go. And uh, and I drove everywhere to save money. And then when it got when we started making money off the athletes, I started to fly a lot more. But my first couple of years, I drove everywhere. I mean, I wanted to see how the OHL works. So I drove to Windsor, Ontario, and came back across Ontario in the 401 watching junior hockey. I never got many clients out of junior hockey, but I wanted to see how it worked. And, uh, you know, they they were great, they were very enthusiastic about developing a sports practice. They actually pitched Marvin Hagler while I worked there. Huh. He came in and they pitched to represent Marvin Hagler, who was the middleweight champion of the world at the time. <laughs> um, so they they were excellent, it was a, a real positive experience there.
0: Okay, and speaking of representation, um, we recently had a, a gentleman named Jeff Perlman on and he's a U.S. author and he just wrote a book about Shaq, Kobe and the Lakers of from 96 to 04 and and there's also another uh, a, a Canadian basketball player named Carl English. And how this ties into a question with you is they, they talk about the draft in the NBA, and I think this you could, you could answer this because of you know, the primetime sports management conference brings you together with so many people from other major sports. So to make a long story short, um, how, how do agents what's the difference between how agents uh, impact a draft? in the NHL between that and let's say the NBA where it seems like the agents you know they're they're really dictating a lot of things into where a player will land so to speak does that happen in hockey as much
2: I don't recall ever talking to an agent about drafting a player other than if I were going to try and trade up like before I made the deal for the Sedins I talked to Michael Barnett and said look if I can pull this off this is what the parameters of the contract have to be. You're not, I'm not going to get these kids and then have a loaded revolver pressed against my temple. Right. Um, and same thing, I talked to Pat Morris before I traded up for Chris Pronger. Uh, but other than that, the agents, I think they do have a, a fair amount of influence in the NBA, but they don't in our league, it, not in my experience. 32 years, never once I call an agent and say, who do you think I should take?
0: Or, or they call you. and I mean, I know they're probably not going to call Berkey, but you, there might not be a case where an agent thinks they, they can get into the ear of a of a GM and, and influence that, maybe not you, but somebody else.
2: Yeah, and they, and they might, and they did. They'd call and say, look, this is, uh, I've got, you know, like the, before the Bobby Ryan draft. So we come in, we lose the lottery, Pittsburgh gets Sidney Crosby. This is 05, I guess. And um, there was a great deal of, pushing it because there wasn't a consensus second overall pick. We took Bobby Ryan who's turned out marvelously but Jack Johnson was sitting right there and you know and I my track record is I draft defenseman mm. and so um, there was a lot of wheeling and dealing and pushing on that uh, You know, guys trying to get us to take their guy second or third but again it wasn't influential it was more like hey don't overlook my guys. It was, was kind of like talking over a beer type stuff not okay. like hey if you draft this guy, he's not coming or <laughs> anything like that. N- nothing like that.
0: Um, just because you mentioned it uh, on the sedine draft, that was a really interesting uh, part in the book. And 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 uh, what I what I what I found particularly interesting was the fact that you had one in three, and then for a bit of showmanship. You made it two and three. So could you, to the viewers, explain, maybe give a little bit of a background, or sorry, I should say listeners, uh, the background on on what I'm kind of asking about, how you had the one and three pick, and then you you got them back-to-back?
2: Yeah, so we worked very hard on that deal. A week before the draft, we made the deal with Chicago to get the fourth pick overall. So now we've got three and four, and that's not going to cut it, right? Um, And Daniel Sedin was rated higher of the Twins and Tampa Bay Rick Dudley was a tough man he he had the first pick so the Sunday before on Father's Day I made a deal with with Bob Murray in Chicago to trade Brian McCabe which I hated doing I loved Brian McCabe as a player uh, and we would get to so we got the fourth pick but we didn't register it with the league I felt I had a better chance of negotiating with the two teams ahead of me if they didn't know I had four So I didn't spring that on Rick Dudley till the night before the draft. I said, Duds, I've got three and four. No one is leaving here with both kids but me. (laughs) And he said, you can take Danny C if you want. And and they're taking Patrick Stefano, too, who's going to Atlanta. Then I'm going to take Hank. And then I'm going to take someone else's four, and then I'm going to wait you out. So we had a very unpleasant conversation that night. He's a tough man. I think, I, To this day, I think if he'd been in our hotel, we would have had a fist fight in the lobby. And I don't think it would have gone well for me. <laughs> He's a tough man. Um, so on the floor, I, and I always get to the draft three hours before. Dave Nonis and I are always the first guys there. So we're sitting at our table, and I, I told my wife when I went to bed that night, I said, I'm getting fired. If Rick Dudley doesn't make this deal, I'm getting fired because number four pick was Pavel Brendel, who we didn't like at all. And I just traded Brian McCabe on a first next year for Pavel Brendel. I'm I'm getting canned <laughs> over this. So Dudley comes in, comes right over, says, all right, I'll do your deal. Because he had asked for a second and a fourth. I told him I'd do two-thirds. He came over and said, I'll do your deal. I said, you traded the pick already, haven't you? And he said, yeah, he'd already traded it to the Rangers, and they took Pavel Brendel. So now I've got one and three. So the assistant GMs of both teams was Jay Feaster with Tampa, Dave Nonis with us. They go and meet with the league to do the trade call, right? You do it in person. you got to look at the contracts, make sure there's nothing. Whatever draft picks are involved aren't encumbered. And I walked over to Donnie Waddell at Atlanta's table. I said, do you want to be the star of the draft? And he said, well, <laughs> I got a pretty good idea who's going to be the star of this draft. I said, no, do you want to pick first overall? And he said, uh, why? Well, I'll get the guy I want anyway. I said, look, no expansion team has ever drafted first overall. I do not want to go up there twice. <laughs> the visual effect, I, I want to be on the stage with both twins. So I'll give you the pick for a third. You can move up and pick one. Ted Turner was there. Ted Turner owned the the Atlanta Thrashers (laughs) then. He's the one who picked the name. Mm. And so they went up on the stage and picked number one, and we went up and took the Twins 22 or second and third, and that's why they were 22 and 33. They wanted high numbers, and I said no. (laughs)
1: <laughs> ah, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask with regard to the NHL draft, when I was watching the, your, you on Sportsnet last week, you noted a couple of times that a player was a multi-sport athlete. I kind of wondered, like, how did evaluating, you know, young players change over your career as early specialization started to creep more and more into hockey?
2: Well, the first draft where I really remember talking to a player who said he had not played a lot of other sports was brian allen when i drafted him in vancouver great kid wonderful young man but i said what jobs have you had in the interview he looked at me like i had two heads I said, what do you mean <laughs> what jobs i said what jobs have you had like i played high school football and hockey i had a part-time job as a, a warming house attendant in an outdoor rink I, I i worked outside when i was in university i said what jobs have you had he said i play hockey 12 months a year so I think it really has gone to specialization to the detriment of the athletes. I, I really believe multiple sport athletes uh, are, are turn out to be better pros because one, they pick up some traits and some athletic ability, some physical ability, things that they don't get from hockey. And so um, I, I remember Urban Meyer was coach at Ohio State, I think. there's a It's on YouTube somewhere. And he put up a bunch of numbers on a whiteboard like 45 guys and then he put up three numbers and he asked the media what do you think this list is and they were like no idea he said these three guys are the only guys on our team that did not play more than one sport in high school all those great football players that ohio state ran track and field or wrestled or you know played a second sport basketball and what it does is it gives you another skill set but it gives you a break from your core game you know you playing hockey 12 months you get tired of that like i used to love high school football i played high school football and then we got done on friday night and hockey started monday and i hadn't skated till i went on the ice on monday but the work in the weight room with the football team the play the play calling the planning the the discipline that it takes to be a successful high school football player was extremely useful to me as a hockey player
0: we also got to quickly, before Nate gets to do his next question, we got to shout out Brian Allen because, of course, uh, we're both from Kingston. Brian Allen, Kingston guy. Go ahead, Nate. Great,
2: <laughs> great kid. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. he played, uh, I think, a year of junior C in Amherstview, which is where I, I played, you know, house league hockey. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Go ahead, Nate.
1: Uh, how much did you also want to stress to readers that, ownership and structure of an organization is crucial to an nhl team's chance of success because you had you know varying experiences with that each stint in vancouver plus you know hartford and anaheim it was kind of there was a it was all over the spectrum i think
2: yeah i i think when i started writing this book what i was trying to do and i think i did was to show the decision making challenges that you faced as a GM every step of the way. Sometimes that's conflict with a player on your team. Sometimes it's conflict with your coach. Sometimes it's conflict with your owners. And you've gotta be able to manage those situations and manage up. Now, I have an NHL record, even though I never played in the NHL. No person has been GM of more teams than I have at five. And so that's not an enviable record. It means I didn't manage up well enough. (laughs) or or made poor choices twice the team i want to work for was sold and you seldom get through a change like that a team is sold usually they bring in new people so um you know i said after i got fired in toronto and 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 again i want to be accountable if i would won more games the new owners in toronto would have had to keep me on but i didn't win enough games so they made a change no problem and i'm not bitter about any of the places i worked i'm grateful for the chance to work there my dad taught me that when someone offers you a job, the first thing to say is thank you, even if you're not going to take the job, because someone said to you, you're important enough to us, we want to hire you, and five times that happened in the NHL for me, and I'm grateful for that, So, but I, I think someone reading this book should get some sense of the magnitude of the job. It's not just drafting well and developing well. It's maintaining relationships with your farm team coach. It's putting the right people at the right chairs, and then handling ownership when they when they don't like what you're doing or if they try to interfere. And I think I painted a pretty good portrait of that without throwing anyone under the bus.
0: Building on that, hockey fans will remember your exit pressers and a whole uh, bunch of other pressers as well. Um and and in those exit pressers when they happened at the time, those press conferences, it looked like you wanted to say more. So was part of the excitement of writing this book having a chance to really explain things like you did with your departure with the Leafs and maybe a little bit about the on the Vancouver side? Was was this book finally a chance now that you've left that part of the game to to kind of, I, w- I don't want to use the word unleash, but just set the record straight from your perspective?
2: Yes, for sure. Set the record straight. because there, uh, The story I t- that I tell in the book about Taman, when I left Anaheim, ownership made that change. Everyone thinks that I left to come to the Leafs. I didn't leave Anaheim. I was in the final year of a four-year contract and I said I will honor this contract but I'm not going to sign an extension I was flying back to Boston to see my daughter every other weekend for 11 years in Vancouver and Anaheim combined I flew back to see my kids two weekends every month I don't know any dad in any line of work that's done that let alone a guy running a pro sports team I missed a playoff game one year in Vancouver because I, I was a weekend with my kids and my ex couldn't switch so to me that's why I said, I can't stay here. I can't stay on the West Coast. I've, this is 11 years now. And so they said they wanted someone who was going to stay, and, and they wanted him to take over Bob Murray. That's how I left. When I went back for the 10 year Cup reunion, KMU, Solani, says to me, Oh, nice. You bailed on us to go to Toronto. And I said, <laughs> Let's go. Went outside on the deck and had a cigar with him. I said, You got to understand what happened. I didn't bail on you guys. Ownership made a decision. And enti- ownership's entitled to do whatever they like. But I didn't bail. And was I, and I said, the guys don't know that. I said, well, you got to make sure they do.
1: Right. And, and just how grueling was it went, to make those uh, you know, cross-continent commutes regularly in order to you know, strengthen the bond with your children?
2: Well, what I told my kids when I took the Vancouver job, I said, you will not lose one day with your dad. I promise you that. And I kept that promise. And I paid for all those flights, too. Nobody paid for my travel. Uh, until the very last stop the Calgary Flames did because I would often or not often always combine it with a scouting trip or a media appearance I'd go to a Leafs game I'd go to a junior game and so they felt there was a scouting component to it uh, and that's that was the only team that paid the rest of the time I paid for those flights it was uh, probably over $100,000 over the years and so in the first couple years in Vancouver they had a flight on Thursday night Air Canada had a non-stop to Boston get in at 10 o'clock at night it was a lifesaver. No customs, so you get off the plane, whatever. Then they, it was always empty. I'm saying they can't continue this flight, <laughs> so they got rid of it. So now you got to fly to Toronto, go through U.S. Customs, switch terminals. You needed to leave two hours between landing and takeoff in case there were any delays. Your flight from Vancouver's late. So now you, you get through customs, you run to that. Remember that crappy little terminal where all the U.S. flights <laughs> left yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. You get on a crappy little plane, to Boston, and you leave at you know on Thursday morning at nine o'clock. You get back to Boston like three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon. Go scout a game because I didn't get my kids till Friday, so I'd go to a college game, and then i pick up my kids Friday. go food shopping and start making dinner, and then pick them up from school. So it was grueling, but I think that's the commitment you make if you're a dad, if you have kids, you got to be part of their upbringing.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to a Brunt here and. Um just ask you, you know, there's tough sections of this book, and he spoke of that process in the radio interview I alluded to earlier. So he talked about trust during those times when you were explaining some of the more difficult parts of the book. I just wanted to, to get you to expand on that relationship of trust when you had to go to those hard places uh, in the narrative.
2: Well, uh, I didn't know when I did the book with Penguin. I did not know that they wanted me to read the books onto an audiobook, <laughs> And so no one told me that. And so my agent, Rick Broadhead, called me and said they want you to set up times in the studio to go in and read the book. I said, I'm not reading the book. I've <laughs> already read it like nine times. I don't want to read it out loud. Right. And he said, well, people much prefer the author to read the book. So we worked out a deal with Penguin, and I went in and did the book. So again, like he said, they set aside four days for me to read this book. I did it in two Uh, But the part that you'll hear, even if you listen to it on audio, the part I struggle with is the chapter about Brendan. So as people know, my son passed away in a car accident not long after he came out very publicly as gay, uh, died in a car accident with another fine young man who was in the car with him, and they were in a snowstorm and Brendan was driving, and, and he died in a car accident. So, you know, writing it down is hard enough. And we had to stop, I think, a couple times while we were dictating that part. But reading on the audiobook you'll hear if you ever bother to listen to it the difficulty of recounting that that night in those days. I mean it was you know I was at a junior game I was in London, Ontario watching Nazim Kadri and I got the phone call and drove home and had to fly to Indiana and retrieve his body and take it back to Boston and that's not an easy time it was a terrible time then and it's not easy to talk about even now so that you'll hear if you listen to the audio book that I struggle with that. That was hard to get through. And yeah, I trusted Steven and I told him the story and I liked the way it came out. And, and I will stress, I tried to get everything right in this book. I'm sure there's errors. But when I talk about the city, Neil, I had Dave known who was by my side through the whole thing. You know, is there anything in here that's not accurate? Is there anything in here that's wrong? Cause I want the book to be factual. Now, people will point out this was wrong that was wrong and that's just old age that's just 30 years of the business and you're telling stories that happened Uh, they're actually closer to 40 years so you're telling stories about when you represented Brett Hull you're going to get some stuff wrong but I tried wherever I could get a second party to verify a section I did
0: Um, you do have the book with you right now correct no. Oh, you don't. Okay, sorry, Steve. I'll have to edit that part. Out. We were actually going to get you to read uh, some of the book, but since we know you hate reading uh, your book, uh, we will we'll skip that part. Um, um,
2: I had to I had to sign 500 books. I'm telling you, some of the books you get to you do 100 books, and by the 100th book, my handwriting is like a first grader's. So I apologize. Some of the people that signed up for this virtual event with Indigo to get an autographed book it's going to look like a first creator did it but i did <laughs> sign them all and i had to return them all so i don't even have one copy of it here
0: oh ah, no i mean it, I, I'm, people want to read it And i mean just touching on that too um uh and i appreciate you answering that tough tough question so candidly uh you are doing an event coming up right uh, with the with mr brunt down uh i don't know where it is but you guys are, are doing some sort of a in-person conversation about the book is that is that right
2: I think it's all virtual, oh virtual. yes yeah. I think there's people that bought tickets mm-hmm. online, and I'm going my agent will kill me if I don't have this information in front of me so I can tell people what it is <laughs> it is it is on
0: uh I think it's the nineteenth Monday
2: October nineteenth yeah, yeah. yeah Monday October nineteenth at seven o'clock through indigo i, I and there, it's a zoom call with the a number of people who bought tickets and want to ask questions about the book, and they all get an autographed copy.
0: I will say to uh, to our listeners that are used to listening to our authors read a, a section. Uh, I there is a section online. I think at the Penguin Random House uh, website where Berkey reads about five minutes. Uh, I think it's the Anaheim Cup Run portion that's online, so you can go there to listen to that. Um, but Nate, uh, I, I believe you're you're up next.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, one one section I was really interested in uh, was what did you what do, what was. Uh, it was the section, of course, about the Canucks in 2004, Todd Bertuzzi and, and Steve Moore. Uh, where, what did you sort of want to set, you know, correct or set straight when trying to convey what was going on at that time? Because it was such a one of those emotional flashpoint things and, you know, you know uh, lots of strong opinions. But at the end of the day, you know, the, you know there's, there, there's what really happened.
2: Well, the, uh, what well, the story I've told is what really happened from my perspective, in real in real time. I was at the game that night. I was at the prior game in Colorado where we we had an incident-free game, and I think just you know th- this never should have happened to Steve Moore. No question about it. You can't look at it any other way. But Todd Bertuzzi had good intentions. You know, he just he thought he was sticking up for his best friend and his linemate, Marcus Naslin, he saw Steve uh, uh, Sean Pronger come out and try and start a fight with Steve Moore, and then he went after him, and then he, he sucker punched from behind. Him. It's not acceptable. But just the 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 notion, the the price that Todd Bertuzzi had to pay for that, to, in my mind, was was grossly out of line with the actual act uh, and how the injury occurred. And and it's not. I don't want to get bogged down in it, but that that is truly you, you get one of you guys asked me earlier if I'm trying to set the record straight that is truly an effort to set the record straight on what really happened
0: and it is true that bertuzzi never was the same player after either um you know if you watched no. him or 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 saw him I mean I, I don't think he did much press I mean if he was at a morning skate he'd kind of you know he'd disappear and and he wasn't as physical on the ice
2: yeah and I, I said in the book Richard Petty told me afterwards after my son died it was never the same. And I was making a, a concerted effort to appear to everyone around me, most especially my kids, that I was the same, that we were going to move on and everything was normal. And Richard Petty said, you can't go through something that life changing and not be affected adversely. And he was right. I realize it now. But same with Todd. He went through that. And I just I don't know how you go on the ice and not think about that for the rest of your career.
0: Just because we're on the Vancouver topic, I know we're in Toronto and we have, we'll we get to a few Toronto questions too, as well as more about the book, but I want to ask you, um, uh, in your first uh, time around with the Canucks, um, Vancouver and Calgary and perhaps New Jersey, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, seem to be at the forefront of the Soviet you know, influx, the toe in the water for the NHL. We know Pat Quinn was instrumental in thinking outside of the box, but... I, I, there's a line about the Griffiths family, kind of, you know, basically being interested in 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 getting these Soviets over. So I want to know what what do you think intrigued them? Because it, it seems to be a you know interest on their part as well.
2: Well, I think Mr. Griffiths, um, the late great Frank Griffiths, he was a wonderful man and a great owner. It was a privilege to work for him. I think he saw a global picture of that these players were going to come sooner or later and that we should be in the queue. And I think it was his direction. I think he also had visions of doing business over there in his other businesses. He's in the automobile business. He was in the broadcast business. Um, And I think he, so they reached out before I even got there, they had reached out to the Russians. I remember at the 88 Olympics in Calgary, we rented a house and we met with the Russians and they, they told us there, you will be the first team to get a russian player and of course we weren't the triakon i think it was that <laughs> yeah. went to uh calgary but um you know we drafted larry Onov and Krutov, and eventually we got to them but the Griffiths family set that in motion they brought anatoly anatoly tarasov the great mm-hmm. coach
3: yeah.
2: over to training camp he was at my first training camp in 87 and trechak came over and did a goalie clinic and um and I, I tell the story in the book. I'll bore you guys since you read it. But Shabchak <laughs> no, shows up the first day with no equipment. <laughs> so we had, to, we had to outfit him head to toe in goalie equipment. And he shows up the next day. We had a clinic at UBC, no equipment. And we're like, this bastard is stealing the equipment. <laughs> and, and what he did is he took it back. Like right. things were so bad in, in Russia, Soviet Union, I guess, back then, that he took all that equipment back and gave it to kids that couldn't get equipment. So I got lots of time for Tretjak. At the time, I was like, "He's stealing them," <laughs> but he wasn't. No, I... and so they had a they had a good relationship with the Russians before I got there and before Pat got there. Then Pat went over and signed them both and brought them back. And you know, Krutov was a disaster, and Igor <laughs> Laryanov was a joy.
0: Yeah, I I I, I was interested in because I've I've heard this before about the part where I think it's Laryanov's wife was a. Uh, Taking all the meat off the rack in uh, the Seven Eleven or wherever, and I've heard that yeah. about. Uh, sorry, it's go true. On.
2: She, went, Jennifer Smeal took <laughs> his his wife, Kruka or uh, Larry Arnold's wife, Elena, who's beautiful and, and a nice lady. To they stopped like at a Seven <laughs> Eleven or a Max or something, and so there were you know packages of bologna and sliced ham, and she started grabbing them all and grabbed arms full of <laughs> of meat. And Jennifer said to her, what are you doing? She said, well, we have to take it while it's here. Because in Russia, <laughs> if stuff was in the store. You bought as much as you could until it was gone. Yeah. And so I remember one of my trips over to try to negotiate the release of, of, of Krutov, which we ended up paying a fortune to do, and that's in the book too. But um, I remember one of the translators came in, and he was grinning from ear to ear. And I said, I think it was Igor was his name. I said, Igor, why are you so happy? He said, bananas. (laughs) They had bananas at the store. He bought eight bananas. He said, my kids haven't had a fresh banana in over a year, and they love them. I have bananas. And I remember I gave him all my meal money. I felt so badly for him because U.S. money was like currency. U.S. currency over there is like gold. And I, I think I had 300 bucks of mail money for the trip and I gave it all to him and said here you, you feed your family for the next couple months on the Vancouver Canucks
0: yeah I shouldn't be laughing um, it, but it, yeah that was the sign of the times back then at the end of uh, of the Soviet uh, Union essentially um, and uh, it wasn't just those guys there was lots of lots of stories about lots of players uh, having to you know coming over here and then you know taking food and that type of thing because they didn't know the difference um, I actually have to ask you uh, Bill, you know touching on that, uh, and I, I hope my pronunciation's right on this, but how did the, the Cyrillic alphabet help you obtain uh, Pavel Bure?
2: Well, that was Mike Penny. So l- let's go back. I, I didn't mention two names. When I talk about the Twins, the two guys that deserve the most credit for the Twins are Thomas Gordine and Mark Crawford. Because Thomas Gordine found them and believed in them long before I did and really pushed us to do this. Like He was in my face about this every time I talked to him. And then Mark Crawford turned them into players. And when they came over, they weren't very good. You could see they were going to be good, but they didn't put up big point totals. I think Danny got 20 as a rookie, but they didn't hit those big point totals till I was long gone. And Mark Crawford believed them. He just said, you're going right back out. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. Just keep playing. He knew what they were going to be. Uh, and on the Pavel Burry thing, that, Mike Penny deserves the credit for that. So he, if he played 10 games or more that year, in in a, in a top russian league he was draft eligible in any round if he played fewer he had to be drafted in the first three rounds so the russians put out official statistics that said he played nine games but mike penny had a contact in st petersburg who said no he played two games here in st petersburg he's played 11 games and they faxed us the game sheets and they were in cyrillic alphabet but you could see Bure. you know it looks he clearly played those two games. And there's a there's a great backstory, which I'll come back to. But anyway, so we took him in the sixth round. And people stormed the stage. There was this outrage. The the, the late, great Jack Butner at the front of the stage yelling at Mr. Gregory. He's not eligible. And Mr. Gregory said, you can draft anyone you want. If he's not eligible, then they forfeit the pick. But we were pretty comfortable. And the league investigated it for a year and then gave us Pavel Burr. They said the pick stands. Now, the backstory about that that I think is fascinating is Glenn Sather, who was the GM of our divisional hated rivals, the Edmonton Oilers, had the same information. And he called the NHL. They told me this. Slats never told me this. He called the NHL and said, you should uphold the pick. We have the same information they did. He played 11 games. So that's a, a rival in our division doing the right thing. So there is some honor in this game.
1: Absolutely, and and that discrepancy was that. Did, looking back, was that maybe a case of the Soviet Union trying to hope to hold on to Pavel Bury for a little bit longer?
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah, he had a year. He had a year remaining on his contract anyway. So they were, they were going to try and make him stay, and then uh, extract big money for anyone who wanted to take him out of there.
1: And and pe- pe- uh, obviously this is a, I, people should know. You had mentioned Crawford and Graden. I'm wearing the. Early '80s Canucks jersey with the V and no crest on the front. So,
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, those were we had bad uniforms when we got there. I don't think I put the story in the book, but we went from the when we got there they had the the tilted skate logo, and we had yellow uniforms
3: mm-hmm.
2: and yellow uniforms just they, they didn't look right. So Pat switched it to white. And I remember we had a guy come in, a tailor come in. We had the white sweater with the logo on it. It looked beautiful. You guys remember those. Those yep. were nice. And we're trying to figure out the, what striping should go on the sleeves and on the waistband. So every team has striping on their waistband. Mm-hmm. And here's Pat Quinn, this big, tough Irishman with a mouthful of straight pins. He's got like five straight pins <laughs> sticking out of his mouth because we're pinning on different widths of <laughs> orange uh, orange and yellow and black waistbands on the sweater see what looked past, and here's this big tough Irishman with a mouthful of pins I laughed I wish I'd taken a picture of it it's like
0: phantom <laughs> thread yeah he's, he's, he's like Daniel Day-Lewis in phantom thread like a fashion house all of a sudden go ahead man. yeah that,
1: that 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 is probably the best Canuck, Canucks look uh now just sort of jumping ahead to you know the Toronto years you know no one none of us have a has a crystal ball but if you had stayed on beyond 2013 in Toronto how, how do you think that might have played out in in the best case scenario
2: Well, I I think making the coaching change and and getting Randy in there was important. And then, you know, the whole 18-wheeler thing and all that. Um, I think what we're trying to do is get an identity as the fastest team in the NHL, but the toughest team in the NHL. So that was Colt Noor. We had Mark Fraser on that team. Uh, They brought in McLaren after I left, but we were trying to get him when I was still there. We were trying to get uh, Fraser McLaren from San Jose. And we just wanted to be a team that would entertain you. We had Kessel and Grabowski and Kuhlman, and we would get the puck, and our, our team or opponent would have to give up the blue line right away because we had such good team speed, Clark MacArthur. And, and we had all this foot speed, and then we had a, a, a bottom six that could kill penalties and scare the hell out of you. And I really believed that team would make the playoffs. And when I got fired, I said to Larry Tannenbaum, this team is going to make the playoffs a forty eight game season. Why won't you give me the season? If we miss the playoffs then fire me. And he said, No, we're making a change now. But I think that team would have made the playoffs. It did. And maybe is there a different result in that first series against Boston? Who knows? But I've again I've no problem with the decision making. Team was sold. I didn't win enough games. They made a change. And you know, Dave Nolas got the job and I was happy for that. I was happy they didn't go outside and bring someone in.
0: In terms of Dion Phaneuf, um Phaneuf, I should say uh, with him, obviously, you mentioned salary, and, and he might have had um, you know people looking at him differently after he signed that big contract uh, in Canada. But uh, do you, do you feel? I think the common consensus is that Dion Phaneuf never was the the physical, hard hitting guy he was in junior. And do you th- do you is that is that something you agree with? And do you think he changed his game in some way uh, for uh, to his own detriment when he came into the league? Because he didn't seem to be a guy that engaged in the physicality, in the way people thought he would.
2: Yeah, I don't agree. I I think um, it's one thing to do a double D on at the World Junior. It's it's much harder to hit NHL players. Hitting is a really, really underrated skill because it's hard to hit. You can eliminate a guy in the corner, but the big hits like he threw in the World Junior, it's really hard to trick guys into those now. Mm. So I I talk to my players about this. say, look, if you want to be a big hitter, You've got to move your feet long before the puck gets to the guy you want to hit. You've got to anticipate he's going to get that puck and get close enough to him that you can close the range on him and get him. And so there's a lot of thinking that goes into it. I thought Dion was, was a really good player for us. I think the Canadians can't stand big salaries when the team's not doing well. They just, Americans are used to it from the other sports. But in Canada, you look in every marketplace. They turn on guys that are making big money and don't produce, and in their mind, Dion wasn't producing because we weren't winning. I, I it was a joy for me to have Dion as a player, who's a good captain, good teammate, good in the community.
0: As for Canada, uh, you're you're obviously happy here. You've been living in Toronto, and you've you know, a large part of your professional career, almost all of it's been here. And there's part of the book that explains your effort to study the country as soon as you got here and down to the minutia, you kept abreast of like what your local MLA was doing in BC. Um, so are you basically saying that um, you, you, people have to, have to earn their, their right to have an opinion? Because, you know, you obviously have a lot, you speak your mind. So is there, is there a process of earning that?
2: I, I was opinionated about hockey matters. I mean, when I when Pat hired me, no one. a lot of people were like, who? <laughs> Assistant GM Brian Burke, who? Because in hockey circles, everyone knew who I was. I had great success as a player agent. And teams liked when I represented their players because I was hard on my players. If a guy had a bad game, I would be in a space worse than the coach would. Very different from today. I would go right – I remember Gates Orlando was a guy that had some great years in the American League – I went to watch one night in Rochester. He had a terrible game and he came out and he was physically afraid to see me. (laughs) He got about 10, 10 feet away and he said, I know, I know. I said, you might as well buy a McDonald's here. You're gonna retire here. You're never gonna get out of this league playing like that. You gotta work harder than that. So the teams, the guys I dealt with liked the fact that I would fight for the money, but then I would do the right thing with the player. So what my point on that was, you're moving to a foreign country, so you're American, and there's a steady current of uh, undercurrent of anti-Americanism in Canada. Mm. Well, when um, U.S. in the World Juniors in Toronto, when the U.S. played Russia, Canadians cheered for the Russians. Mm. You know, like who would have thought, right? Mm. Whereas Americans, if Canada's playing the Russians, they're cheering for Canada. Right. They're, they're never going to cheer for Russia. So, but I think when you move to a new country. It's your job to fit in. It's not, it's not. It wasn't Vancouver's job to accept me. I had to fit in, in my view. I wanted to pass for a Canadian, so I read the paper cover to cover every day. I knew the, high school, the girls' high school teams <laughs> that were doing well in basketball. I knew all about the local politics. I read the paper cover to cover. I listened to the radio, and people were impressed with that. They were like, here's a guy who clearly wants to fit in and be part of the community here in Vancouver. And then I got my Canadian citizenship. I applied to upgrade my immigration status. The first day I was eligible, every time. So I came in. I came in under a special visa, uh, special qualifications. My dad used to say special education, <laughs> but it was special qualifications. So I had a Harvard law degree, unlikely to be a, a, a drain on the province, unlikely to be a drain on the on the country. So I got my job. They couldn't have got me in as a hockey guy because it would have to prove that no one in Canada could do that job. And there's a whole bunch of people who could have done that job. So uh, three years to the day after you, after you're there on a legal visa, you can apply for landed immigrant status.
3: Mm.
2: That day I drove down to the peace arch crossing. You have to leave the country and come back in, apply for landed immigrant that day in a horrible rainstorm. I'll never forget. I went down, applied for landed immigrant status. Then two years from that day, You have your eligibility to become a canadian citizen which i did and very proud to be a canadian citizen and i have worked in canada almost my whole life every every time i've been offered a job in canada i took it because i love the passion for the game here and it gives me a platform for my charitable stuff
0: how do i I guess how do canadian you know you must know then because you're american by birth and and you you've been with the league office in the nhl in new york sorry how do Canadians consume the game differently than Americans or the rest of the world, if at all? Do, we, do you feel like we consume the game differently? You mentioned the you know the look at salaries when a player is bad uh, or not playing but well, but yeah, do we consume the game differently here?
2: I, I just think the 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 knowledge and the passion is unmatched anywhere on the globe, but I've been everywhere they play hockey,' I've been to Russia I don't know five, six, seven times, eight times mm-hmm. been to Sweden probably 25 or 30. Finland probably 20, then to Germany, uh, Austria, Czech Republic, uh, Czechoslovakia when it was still one country, Slovakia, all those places. And I've never been in a, in a in an atmosphere where people loved hockey as much or understood it as well.
0: Mr. Burke, I know we're uh, we've got you uh, on a limited amount of time, but uh, I do have a few more questions, so if you will, uh, we we will just go ahead with those if that's okay with you. Um, yep. and um, so uh, going to your current job now in terms of consuming hockey and we're talking about Hockey Night in Canada there's a couple of passages I want to read uh, so first of all uh, you're featured prominently in Dave Schultz's Hockey Fight in Canada you're the first person mentioned in the in the entire book that book came out a couple of years ago about the uh, fight for Hockey Night in Canada and how it eventually moved from CBC to Sportsnet um, so I, I want to read this portion to you and then ask you uh, about your assessment, this is on page ten of the book. And it, it, the, I'll preface it by saying he's talking about how you know you're running the Leafs at this point, and you know you're happy as anyone would be that you know they're getting the biggest ratings and and they're on every Saturday night. But then it goes on to say, um, uh, but Burke was unhappy in the extreme with Cherry and McLean over what he saw as unfair criticism of him, the Toronto Maple Leafs and their head coach Ron Wilson. The irony was that Burke's approach to the game was almost the same as Cherry's. A large, tempestuous man who favored an unbuttoned appearance with his tie perpetually draped around his neck rather than tied under his collar. Burke liked big, tough, physical players who could not only skate with their opponents, but pound them into the boards as well. So um, I want to ask you, I mean, do you feel that um, that's an accurate assessment? I mean, were you kind of not happy with with the way Hockey Night was, was treating the team at the time?
2: Well, a couple of things. First off, I've always had a great relationship with Don Cherry, uh, with notable exceptions. There was a time where, I, uh, I Doug Lidster was playing for us when I was an assistant GM, and he made a mistake of commenting that at the end of the year he might entertain free agency. And I said that it, uh, I didn't want the young players reading that. I know the business. Wait till the end of the year, and then do what you have to do. And so I offered, I said, if I were his teammate, I'd fight him in practice tomorrow. And Graves <laughs> went nuts. <Right>. And <laughs> Graves said, he said, Doug, I'll I'll be there with you to fight this guy. So we had a couple of tips like that. But I did a couple of charity things with Graves when I worked at the league. And I, I really respect and admire Don Cherry. And um, so it was a little bit, I think the book, the story about that meeting, which was in Ottawa,
3: mm-hmm.
2: was all the Canadian teams were upset. Right, Like it wasn't just the toronto maple Leafs. everyone was upset with a lot of the coverage and the things that, that went on so when i finished talking vancouver said we echo completely what brian burke just said ottawa jumped on murray edwards flew back from europe or something just to be at that meeting we didn't feel that the right emphasis was being put on the right stuff in the game And so it was a unified Canadian effort. It wasn't Brian Burke against these guys, and it wasn't that personal. It was against Ron McLean and and Don Sherry. It was more, how are are we presenting the game? And so it wasn't that that I would – the only thing I would say, and and I respect that writer very much,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. um, but the only thing I'd say, it wasn't the Toronto Maple Leafs against Hockey Night in Canada. It was all the Canadian teams objecting to the way the game was being presented at that time.
1: And, and now that the skate's on the other foot with you being on the TV side of you know, Hockey Night in Canada, uh, how, how do you, how, uh, to what extent do you think those changes have happened with the program?
2: Well, I, I, I will tell you this. The, one, the two things that impress you the most when you go to work for Hockey Night in Canada is the quality of the support staff. So, like, my bosses are very helpful. If they think I'm doing something wrong, they get in my face. If I do something right, they tell me right away. But they, they, I've got a coach, Bob Babinski. We've got a media coach who, yeah. who watches your performance and comes in and makes you go through them and watch the video and say, you got to be more forceful here. you got to end with a stronger finish. So they try and make you better. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is I don't think people realize how hard Ellerson people work. Mm-hmm. Like the preparation, like you go in for a game on hockey night, you're talking to the producer, Brian Spear, on Friday. And you say, here are the topics, or even Thursday. Uh, here's something that happened in the game last night. I want to talk about it on Saturday. Can you cut this footage? Uh, look, at there's four three-on-twos in the second period of the game tonight. I'd like to show them all on Saturday. So the work, that, and then they have engineers cutting the tape for you. So when you come in on Saturday, and I usually go in around 12, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. I'm not on the air. If I do to the point in the second game, I'm not on the air till after... 1035, 1045, uh, but we're in there preparing and you're reading the notes every day. So we get the clips, you get the clippings from every team and every market in the NHL. It's about four hours a day to read them through.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So you're doing that and then you're watching games and, and making notes. And so when you go in on Saturday night, the product that you people see
3: mm-hmm.
2: that you know fans in Canada see is very, very carefully researched. And we're trying to make the right points. I think we use video very well, better than any other, any other station or any other network. Um, like, are in between. Like, if you look at the difference, NBC does a good job, but we do way more replays. We show more. Here's what happened. Here's what went wrong. So I'm imp- impressed with the professionalism, the leadership, and the work ethic at Hockey Night. It's staggering the amount of work that goes into a broadcast.
0: Do you think the league is 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 more satisfied now with the with it at Sportsnet than it was at CBC?
2: Uh, you'd have to ask them. I, I, right. I think they're pretty happy.
0: Okay. Uh, my final question to you is, um, you're, you're a history major and uh, a history buff, and history is said to repeat itself. Well, with that in mind, how do you think we're going to look back on our on this tumultuous time we're living in right now? Is it going to be a footnote? Uh, is, is it going to be a chapter? I mean, we're living in, 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 in what seems to be a uh, kind of a divisive time so as a history buff and a history major how do you see this time playing out later on when we look back at it
2: well from a hockey standpoint the nhl has done unbelievable work to award a stanley cup after a season like this to put the two bubbles together to produce the no negative test to do the stage one stage two stage three was remarkable Hmm. but we're still in the pandemic it's actually getting worse and here in canada and the states um We've dialed it back here in Ontario. And so I think it's going to be a couple chapters, but I don't think the league, they get an A-plus they get an A plus for what they've done so far, but I think history will judge what happens next as just as important, okay. is how do you get a season in, how many games, how do you manage the COVID-19 until there's a vaccine. Uh, the staggering loss of revenue to the teams is a big challenge. The cost of testing... Like I don't the, te- the testing alone in the bubbles was in the millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Like those tests are 110 bucks each, and they, they were they were they gave seven thousand two weeks in the bubble here in Toronto. Do right. do the math. So it, it's it, I think they have a, a A plus is their grade so far, but I think history will look back and say, okay, you got through that. That was remarkable. Now, how do you play this next year?
3: Right.
0: Well, Mr. Burke, um, is there anything else you want to add? We're very grateful for this much time, and we, uh, we enjoyed the book. And uh, we, as, as you already alluded to, you've, you signed 100 copies, and they're already out the door, so we know it's going to do well. Um, but, yeah, anything else uh, you'd like to add?
2: No, I'm good. Okay, well. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, thanks so thanks, much. Thanks,
0: Brian. Okay, have a great day.